you are listening to The Global Current, Seton Hall's School of Diplomacy podcast. Each week, we break down a new topic in global affairs and have a conversation with students to analyze different perspectives on the issue. This is your host, Eric Bunce. Today, we're discussing the Syrian refugee crisis. But before we get into that, let's check in with this week's news briefer, Kasha Kastroba, who will update us on news headlines from around the globe. Kasha? Thanks, Eric. On Monday, the European Union approved sanctions against four Chinese officials involved in running Chinese internment camps for Uyghurs. In its first bid to punish China on human rights grounds since the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, the European Union is expected to be joined by the UK and potentially other global powers, diplomats say, as a part of a wider international coordination to confront China's abuses against its ethnic and religious minorities. The AstraZeneca vaccine during its phase three trial has been proven 79% effective against COVID-19 and 100% effective in stopping severe and fatal cases. While the vaccine has been approved for use in over 50 countries, some European countries such as the Netherlands and Austria paused the administration of the AstraZeneca vaccine last week amid blood clot side effect concerns. Guy Rice Parfait Colossus, the Republic of Congo's top opposition candidate, passed away due to COVID-19 complications on Monday morning. Colossus was flown to France for further treatment on Sunday, however died shortly after landing in Paris, Colossus's death comes on election day in the Republic of Congo, where the incumbent president, Denis Sassou Nagoso's 36-year rule is expected to be extended. Thousands of Sydney suburb residents have evacuated on Monday as record flooding sweeps the region. Rain is set to continue for at least two more days, adding to the 35 inches which have already rained within the past six days, nearly three times the normal March average. And I just want to say to everybody across the state who is currently uh, living in fear and anxiety that uh, all of us are thinking of you. Some communities who were battered by the bushfires are now being battered by the floods, um, a deep drought prior to that. And I don't know any time in our state's history when we've had these extreme weather conditions in such quick succession in the middle of a pandemic. So they are challenging times for New South Wales, but I think we've also demonstrated our capacity to be resilient. But I know for many people, um, they will feel like it's breaking point. Uh, when you've been through um, three or four incidents which are life-changing on top of each other, it can uh, make you feel like you're at breaking point. But please know we're thinking of you and we're getting support as much as we can. Saudi Arabia announced on Monday an offer to Yemen's Houthi rebels in the UN-monitored ceasefire in the country's year-long war. The move follows the Houthi rebels stepping up their methods, targeting Saudi Arabia's oil sites through drone and missile strikes. The Houthis say that there is nothing new in this offer and it still falls short of a lift of blockade on the Sana'a airport and Houthi port. Okay, thank you so much, Kasha. Now for today's topic. In 2011, protests against the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, became violent, kicking off a decade-long civil war which still continues to this day. Perhaps the longest lasting legacy of the Syrian civil war will not be the brutality of the fighting or the war crimes, but the refugee crisis it created. Millions of Syrians were displaced from their home and forced to seek shelter elsewhere within or outside of Syria. 
The resulting refugee crisis would put a great strain on Syria's neighbors and the European Union, which was the destination of many. As the Syrian civil war seems to wind down, we look back on the refugee crisis and what comes next. Joining me today to discuss this and more are two of our own Seton Hall students. Our domestic analyst for today is Hamza Khan. Welcome to the show, Hamza. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. And today's international analyst is Liam Brucker Casey. Welcome, Liam. Happy to be here. Okay, well, let's get right into it. Hamza, starting with you, this, this war began uh, a decade ago. All right, for reference, I was 10 when this war began. Can you remind us how this civil war uh, broke out? Well, basically, it started off as a bunch of student-led protests in the southern city of Dara. But then they eventually, due to like Bashar al-Assad's crackdowns on these protests, they quickly became violent. And, it's, and eventually, um, Syrian uh, rebel groups and defectors from Assad's military, they started, uh, they started defecting from his military and forming their own rebel groups so that they could fight back. And they, tried to, they wanted to overthrow Assad. And this followed the trend in the region at the time, which was the Arab Spring. And that was sweeping through the Middle East at the time. And that's basically Syria got caught up in that. And the Assad regime was facing this rebellion from the from its own people who were tired of his repression. OK, well, it was the rebel group like very fractured. Was it just rebels versus the, the Bashar government or was there other actors in, involved in this? Yeah, so it was really complicated. There were Syrian rebels, then there were like Kurdish rebels, which are a different ethnic group, and they wanted to create their own Kurdish state, and they're in the north of Syria, and the rebellion started near the south of Syria, and then it quickly spread across Syria. Then ISIS also got involved, and they became another group involved in this war. So at like the height of this war, there were at least like six different groups fighting, mm. different, each fighting each other. It was really complicated. It wasn't just a simple like war between two sides. So we got rebel groups, government coalitions, uh, terrorist groups such as ISIS, ethnic groups. Uh, how had like other countries gotten involved? I know the U.S. had some involvement. Uh, what about the West and what about uh, Russia and Iran? What involvement did they have in Syria? If When we look back at the Arab Spring, I think it's um, kind of sobering to remember that um, it started in Tunisia and um, spread throughout uh, North Africa into even the Gulf states to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the only successful uh, spring, so to speak, was exactly where it started in Tunisia. Every other um, movement uh, failed. Um, mm -hmm. Everything else was met with either a, a new dictatorship like we saw in Egypt um, or with just brutal crackdowns that were pretty successful like in the Gulf states, and then in Syria and and uh, I guess you could say in Libya, um, a total fracturing of the country. Um, and like Hamza said, um, you have so many different complicated alliances. Um, it's important to remember that ISIS didn't start as its own group. There were mm -hmm. uh, many Arab, uh, or there were many Syrian uh, rebel groups, and ISIS basically rose out of a percentage of them. And mm -hmm. so you had this merge and uh, spill over in, into Iraq as well. I, I don't want to go on for too long, but but I, yeah. to answer the, your original question, um, <laughs> the Assad government was generally seen as a pretty key 
and, and rare ally for Russia specifically, um, as well as Iran. And because of that, they have supported the Assad regime throughout the war. And then on the other, the flip side of that, uh, what was the Western involvement, the US and, and European involvement? I would say that the rebel groups did not have the same type of support mm -hmm. as the uh, Syrian government. Um, so uh, I think the US and uh, EU nations generally favored a, um, a new government in Syria, mm -hmm. um, partly because of perhaps democratic uh, sympathies, but also um, I believe the Assad regime was already kind of a thorn in the side of uh, Western yeah. uh, kind of coalition. And so a, a more amenable government definitely would have been a plus for the Obama administration and for many EU nations as well. Yeah, also I would like to say like, I think the West got way more heavily involved after ISIS became a bigger threat in the region. Like um, mm -hmm. the U.S. heavily supported the Kurdish-backed force, the Kurdish forces against ISIS, and eventually they were able to defeat them. And most of the Western countries supported that coalition, especially. Well, I, I want to get down more to, to the, the topic at hand, which is the refugee crisis. And this is kind of a an unanswerable question, but perhaps, but not all wars create massive refugee crises or crises like the ones we have seen here. Uh, why, what is it about this war that created such a massive uh, outflow and influx of refugees? Geography plays a huge role in this as Syria has a bunch of neighbors that are, some of them aren't really have really stable governments themselves. So people were easily able to just cross the borders to go into those countries. And also countries like Turkey and even other EU countries like Germany, they were really opening to refugees. Whereas if you con contrast this with like the situation in Yemen, there isn't really a refugee crisis with them because they're being blockaded and their only neighbors are like Saudi Arabia and Oman. So those countries aren't gonna let them in. And on the other side, they're being blockaded. So nobody can leave because they're just surrounded by water. Geography, I think is one of the bigger roles in this specific crisis. See, that's interesting. So part of the reason that there's a crisis is just because refugees have a place to go. Go ahead, Liam. Um, I think another part of it is just the the nature of Syria is generally, um, it's not like a lot of um, spread out uh, sort of pastoral land or um, farmland. A lot of Syria, um, before the war at least, um, was pretty heavily um, urbanized. Um, and so obviously, if you have warfare in an urban area um, mm. with the amount of destruction that we saw, there's yeah. a lot of um, homes that are destroyed. It's not like uh, it's kind of a far off near the capital and most of the people get to live in the countryside. And then the other problem is that um, it would be one thing if the uh, government was overthrown to a more amenable, um, open, uh, democratic government. But the fact that the Assad regime has remained in power um, I think leaves a lot of refugees um, from a strictly safety standpoint, um, very worried uh, about returning. Um, and also once they have gone to um, a lot of the nations that they fled, um, especially Western uh, European countries like mm -hmm. Germany, there's a lot of stories you can read about where mm -hmm. um, Syrian refugees have um, put in by now up to maybe six years in university, they have um, European connections, friendships, maybe their girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife mm -hmm. um, is a, like a local German or Swede or Dane. And so 
the prospect of returning is such a um, a pretty far off notion at this point. It, it kind of reminds me of like the discussions with immigration in the U.S., where you have kids that were born and, and raised here, and telling them like go back to to Mexico. Well, that's just I've never been to Mexico. I actually, and uh, Hamza, you touched on it before. I want to talk a little bit about the reaction uh, in the region to the refugee crisis and starting with some of the countries uh, around um, around Syria, such as Turkey. How have they been handling this influx of refugees? So initially, Turkey was oh, welcoming them with open arms, as they said, and they have the most Syrian refugees at this time with 3.6 million and then 1.3 million went mm. to Jordan and another 1.5 million went to Lebanon. So those are the three main countries that accepted. Then there's like a couple of hundreds of thousands in Iraq and Egypt as well. But the main three were Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon. And Turkey's, they have a whole bunch. They were really, um, the population was really accepting to the refugees at first. But now that um, mm. public opinion has kind of turned against them like five years later. Erdogan, he has a plan called his safe zone plan where he wants to help relocate a million uh, Syrian refugees back to Syria. And they took over, basically the Turkish military just took over like 300 miles south land of, uh, 300 miles of land south of the Turkish border in Syria. And they wanted to make that into like a safe zone because that area was controlled by Kurds. Mm -hmm. And they wanted, they basically wanted that to be like a buffer zone between the Kurds and Turkey because the Turkish government sees the Kurds as a threat to them and they want to relocate a, hundred, a million Syrian refugees to that area mm -hmm. and they want to spend like 27 billion dollars to build like new villages and towns with schools and stuff but the problem with this is there's already people living in those areas those mainly Kurds and especially in the city of Artrin and in that area the Turkish government they've been accused of war crimes and um by Human Rights Watch and ethnic mm -hmm. cleansing of Turkish of Kurdish people in that area. It, it must be difficult dealing with 3.6 million uh, refugees in a relatively short period. Uh, what about within Syria itself? Because I understand that many refugees, about half of them would leave Syria, but another half, around 6 million, would stay in Syria. Where, where are they going? Yeah, so the internally displaced population a lot of them, they have, they flee their cities and they fled to like other um, countryside places and they've found abandoned homes and stuff. But there's also lots of camps that they're living in and there's really not much um, aid provided to them. The Syrian government, they have, uh, they've worked with the UNHCR with to create this uh, initiative called the Global Shelter Cluster, which builds like, which retrofits abandoned buildings to house these refugees. And they also have camps and stuff that they're setting up. And the Syrian government is also working with the UNHCR in a humanitarian response plan. Just to kind of build ahead, off of what Hamza said um, earlier, um, I, I think Turkey is a really interesting example because um, they have really uh, used this. Cri I mean, there's the phrase, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. I, I think um, in many ways, Turkey has um, really played their best hand, um, at least strategically. Um, they have used the uh, large refugee population that they have um, as a really powerful um, sort of cudgel against the EU um, and enforcing certain demands. There have been there there have been many examples where. Um, near the uh, Greek border with Turkey, they mm -hmm. will um, send 
Um, There's a story where they informed a bunch of refugees that, okay, we're going to uh, send you to the EU. We've uh, um, arranged for passage for you. And so many um, of these refugees sold whatever possessions they had and went to the border. And uh, Turks just basically sent them to the border to fight with the border guards. There was no sort of working arrangement. Um, It was really just to um, harass um, Greece and to try to put pressure on the EU for certain concessions that Turkey wanted. Um, and then and then also in the uh, territory that it occupied um, in Syria uh, from the um, northern kind of Kurdish autonomous government or Rojava is another term, um, has, yeah, uh, as Hamza said, basically um, mm. rehomed them in these homes that originally had belonged to ethnic Kurds. Um, and so when you're putting a bunch of ethnic Arabs in, the former homes of uh, Kurds, it really is an ethnic cleansing. And so in that way, um, Turkey has been very ambitious in its foreign policy recently, and this is a, just another part of that. You, okay, you said the word ethnic cleansing, and I just want to clarify something. Do we have reports of, of ethnic cleansing or just forced movements uh, into new territories? Um, I believe, I don't remember the exact organization that would declare mm-hmm. that, but um, a lot of the territory, I, I believe in Afrin was the um, one of the examples. Um, a lot of these homes belong to Kurds, but a lot of them, I believe, mm-hmm. um, ev- evacuated when uh, Turkey uh, occupied the region. And yeah. so um, the Turks basically saw that this there were a bunch of um, free real estate, so to speak, and uh, homed these refugees in this uh, new area. But um, obviously the original population was displaced. It kind of reminds me, and this is pertinent to a class I had today, uh, of the the settlement of uh, Jews in Palestine, even though there were already Arabs living in Palestine before. But let's not go down that rabbit hole. Uh, you mentioned the, the European Union, and I want to move to them now. Uh, what was their reaction to the, the start of the refugee crisis at the beginning? I think the, and I think pretty much every um, official, every bureaucrat um, in the EU would agree with me that um, the EU was in no way prepared um, for the amount of displaced people that were trying to uh, seek shelter. Before the crisis really um, became full-blown, the general idea was that um, EU nations would basically handle themselves whatever um, refugees came to their shore first. So wherever, whichever country was the first to um, be the place in which refugees would land, and that would oftentimes basically be Greece, um, especially for Syrian refugees, um, they were supposed to handle and uh, take care of these refugees, um, organize their asylum claims um, and all that, but obviously there were a lot that went to Greece first. And eventually, a lot of these refugees didn't want to just stay in Greece. Um, They wanted to go to the nations that were seen as having the highest standard of living. Um, And so those nations were going to be Greece and Sweden and the Netherlands. Um, And so you had this crisis where all these refugees were trying to get into Germany, basically. Mm -hmm. And there was no coordinated response about, okay, let's spread them out or whatever, basically, the, the, at one point, I believe at the, towards the end of 2015, 
Um, you had a lot of refugees who were um, camped at a Budapest a train station. Mm-hmm. And at one point, they just start walking to the Austrian border. The uh, Austrians um, get in touch with the Germans and say that we have a real crisis. We don't know how we're going to handle this large influx of people that are now walking to the border. Mm-hmm. And because of that, uh, Germany basically, to base, to in a sense, avoid an even larger crisis, um, took in a large amount of refugees. And this would have a lot of political blowback. Um, it was characterized as she basically um, gave open arms to um, over a million refugees and encouraged more to come. That is a somewhat dubious claim, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, I don't know that at that point uh, Merkel's government had much of a choice um, mm-hmm. if the EU wasn't going to see even more crisis. Um, but, um, and we could get into this later, but I think a lot of EU politics, I think Brexit, I think a lot of things that happened in Europe are pretty directly correlated to mm-hmm. the influx of refugees and the political blowback because of that. So they weren't functioning really as the European Union, they were functioning more as traditionally their their individual states. Yeah, there was not a very cohesive response. Okay. And then we've kind of already mentioned this a bit, or Hamza mentioned it in Turkey. Uh, if there was, what was the reaction, I'm sorry, the, re, the acceptance among the population of refugees uh, at first, and how has that evolved? I would say that um, generally, uh, I think, especially early on, you have that picture of, I believe the boy's name was Alan Kurdi, um, who was that boy who's, I think, was three years old. And there was that really famous picture where his body um, was on the shore. And, and there was a picture of his body on the shore. Um, I believe he was eventually trying to get to Canada, um, but had drowned in the Mediterranean. Um, I think these initial events, a lot of people were very sympathetic and open to the idea of more refugees coming in. Um, and to be fair, that didn't ever completely go away. There are still um, large segments of the population in Europe, um, and not small ones, that are very pro-refugee and really want to welcome in large migrant populations that are in need. Um, mm-hmm. But part of the problem was that um, again, it goes back to not being very prepared. Um, there were large populations that maybe were not really ready to be completely dropped in the middle of urban centers that um, eventually did have conflict with the local population. There's plenty of horror stories of, oh, say there's a, a refugee with a, a German girlfriend and she gets murdered and now there's a ton of political blowback because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, another example is in Cologne, um, there were there was a, a, a large group of uh, migrants, I believe 2015 or 2016, there were reports of a bunch of assaults and that probably would have caused a lot of blowback anyways, mm-hmm. but it was compounded by the fact that um, somewhat understandably, the government and media were a little bit hesitant to um, publicize reports of the men being um, Arab, at least in appearance, and even after that, this was this information was made public, and so a lot of um, citizens felt like the media, especially, was hiding information to be uh, quote PC or something, right? Mm-hmm. And so this stoked even more distrust and kind of 
um, rhetoric that went pretty far to the extreme mm-hmm. of being anti-immigrant and mm-hmm. openly xenophobic. Not to say that it all was, but that definitely happened. This is a familiar story of, you know, starting with, with relatively open arms, but um, just growing backlash over time. We've seen it in the U.S. and it happens in Europe, too. Uh, Hamza, I want to go back to you. Um, what is the current, we didn't actually talk about this too much, we gave a little bit of it away, but what is the the current state of the war? Is it coming to a close? It depends on who you ask. If you ask the Assad <laughs> government, they basically declared victory right after they took back Aleppo and ISIS was defeated. They said, they claim now that they're victorious. And ironically, even in like November 2020, they held a whole conference where they uh, invited representatives from from around the world, but no one came except for people from Russia and like um, I think Jordan sent like one representative. And even like the countries that had the most Syrian refugees, they didn't send representatives to this conference, which was the point of this conference was to encourage refugees to return because he was saying the war is mm-hmm. over. But like um, the EU, they released a statement saying that the conditions are not yet right for refugees to return because they're going to face things like forced conscription, indiscriminate detention, forced disappearances, torture, physical and sexual violence, discrimination and access to housing, land and property, as well as poor, inexistent basic service. So he claims the war is over, but there's still so much reconstruction that needs to be done. And there's a whole area of Syria still controlled by the Kurdish forces. And then there's the main rebel stronghold in Idlib, which is basically the worst humanitarian crisis in the region at the, right now, mm-hmm. where almost 80% of the people fleeing from there are like women and children. And they they don't have, like hundreds of thousands of them are living in broken homes. They're being bombarded daily by Russian and Syrian planes, and they're targeting hospitals and healthcare facilities and really civilian areas. So the situation is looking really bad for the rebel areas. And But for Assad, from his perspective, he's basically one. If this war is, is winding down to a certain extent, um, will Syrians want to go back after the war? Will they be forced to? Um, and what's the feasibility of six million something refugees returning to Syria? Is that even possible? Yeah, that's a really good point. Like most um, most Syrian refugees who were interviewed by CBS News, they said they would not go back un- until the Assad regime was changed or unless Assad stepped aside, which is basically the position of the international community. Like they want to help the refugees return. They want to help Syria rebuild, but they don't want to give money to Assad's government because um, mm-hmm. the current the whatever money they do get currently get the Assad government they they basically change the legal frameworks of the or conditions for the aid so they can basically do whatever they want with it instead of helping the areas that need to be helped and they've basically been playing favorites like for any reconstruction projects they've been awarding it to the areas that remain loyal to Assad but those are the areas that don't really need the aid and the areas that were really bombarded by their by the Syrian military and the Russian military, those areas that really need the aid and that were really hostile to Assad, they're not getting the aid because he just doesn't want to give it to them. Mm. So a lot of difficulties for reconstruction. Liam, any last comments? Um, Yeah, I I think Hamza summed it up pretty well. I think um, if you're in Germany or if you're in Sweden, uh, America, Canada, 
Um, and you already have lived here for um, even just a couple years, um, and the Assad regime is still in power. Um, number one, there's just, I, I doubt that there's a lot of desire to go back right now. Um, and then also, I, I just, um, if there's going to be any adherence to um, international standards and um, agreements that most nations have signed, um, which I think there will be, um, they're just not going to be able to send back really any large number of people um, because the conditions are just not safe for them. Um, and I think uh, we will see most of these populations just stay um, in the countries that they were able to um, find refuge in. Um, I, I just, I think that's generally, and I think most of the governments are beginning to recognize that. Even Turkey um, is beginning to recognize, I mean, a, a lot of uh, Turkey's uh, refugee population is living in urban areas. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think um, eventual uh, citizenship even, um, although that might be a little bit further away, will be granted probably to a lot of these refugees. Okay, well, um, this has been a truly great discussion. Guys, Liam, Hamza, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. That is all for today. Uh, be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates and upcoming shows. This show would not be possible without our dedicated crew. Executive producer Jarrett Dang, associate producer Jasmine Dillion, and Joaquin Matimus. Technical producers Joel Moran and Brittany Segura, and assistant technical producer Jason Marieski. I'm your host, Eric Bunce. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.